0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed for new episodes on most Mondays. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at NationalReview.com. Click on Podcast to see ours and all the other podcasts National Review has to offer. Listen, enjoy, share, please leave reviews my name is scott bertram you can find me on twitter at scott bertram my co-host standing by as always jeff blair jeff how are you uh
1: uh, it's a bit of a mess over
0: here scott i gotta say uh we uh taped over the
1: windows and turned out the lights and lit a bunch of candles (laughs) in, in order to set the mood and you know me i'm just a natural klutz let's just say there's a lot of candle wax all over the floor
0: don't uh, don't be fooled. This is a normal Friday night at the Jeff Blair household. So it's it, nothing indeed. special for today's show. Um, <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at esotericcd, and uh, we introduce our guest for today. He's a writer from California, currently a politics editor at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. If you know him, you know him on Twitter as at the shrillest, where he tweets about everything but politics. He is Ezekiel Kwaku. Ezekiel, thanks for jumping on Political Beats. Thanks for having me. So before we dig into our band today and get started on the actual musical portion of the episode, we asks, uh, ask all of our guests, uh, because on the show, as you know, we talk to people in politics, but not about politics, but we do want to know how you got into this political job, Ezekiel. Um, It was kind of an accident, to be honest. Uh, I...
2: Did a few freelance pieces um, right after things started happening in Ferguson. Um, And those turned into more pieces um, about economics, race, basketball. Um, And then I got a full-time writing job at MTV News when they were doing um, a relaunch. Uh, I did that for... About a year, um, and just before that started imploding, um, New York approached me about being a being a politics editor, and uh, the timing was pretty good for me because I was sort of wanted to move from the less structured life of a writer to a sort of more structured life of a, as an editor, um, because my My wife was expecting our first child, and so I thought it would be probably a good lifestyle change. Um, And also sort of wanted to wanted to gather the tools of editing. I'd never done it before. Um, And so that's how I came to do what I'm doing. And I've been been at this job for about a year.
0: And so we uh we turn now to our to our band today. Normally, I give a long, lengthy, well, a, a, an introduction of the band. This is one of those times when I uh, be up front with uh with our with our listeners. Today's band is one I I, I came to just recently, and this happens from time to time. You get A blind spot in your musical knowledge, so I had to do some heavy-duty listening and research to our featured band today. An English band formed in 1981, active from uh 83 until uh what about 1991 and uh if you heard their first album and their last album you would never guess that it was the same group of people putting music together i don't think and if you know them at all perhaps you know them because no doubt covered one of their songs and went to the top 10 on the US charts back in 2003 with a tune called it's my life uh the band we discuss today is talk talk And Ezekiel, we turn the floor to you because our guests get the opportunity now to tell us, hey, how did you get into Talk Talk? Why do you like them so much? And why should everybody listening care about this band? Well, it's kind of,
2: I was thinking about this question, how I came to Talk Talk. And it's very strange because I don't remember the first time I heard any of their songs. Um I'm guessing I probably heard It's My Life, the song that No Doubt covered, um, at some point um, when I was in college because I was big into synth pop. That's sort of like the first genre of music that I got into intensely when I was growing up. Um, So I probably heard It's My Life at some point. Um, But I don't think it made that strong of an impression on me. Um, And then... Someone, a friend of mine, uh, said "Laughing Stock," which is the last Talk Talk album. Mm-hmm. Is they're like, "This is the greatest album of all time," or something like that. Some some very um, expect expectations building intro, and I remember Talk, talk, talk real, fans are like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I listened to it and. I don't remember anything about that first, that first listen. Um, And I listened to it. I was like, whatever. Um, This is at the beginning of college. So I was listening to a lot of new music. Didn't make that strong impression on me. And I don't know when I started, when I gave it another chance, but I listened to that album and then I like started working my way backwards through their, through their discography And it just, like, that experience of going, of listening to it in, like, reverse chronological (laughs) order Mm -hmm. was very strange. Um, And that's also how I I sort of fell in love with them. Um, Why should anyone? So, and then I realized at that point, because when I re-listened to Laughingstock, I'd sort of gotten into... Ambient music and post rock and experimental music because I'd started working at the college radio station and I also really like synth pop and so this was like the two sides of my, my music listening joined. Um, And that probably has something to do with why I I like them so much. why everyone should care about Talk Talk? I'm not sure everyone should. <laughs> they, um, I mean, I think both sides of the band are kind of insular. Like, if you don't like synth pop, um, you probably won't like their first two albums. If you aren't really into post rock or experimental music, um, you probably won't like their last two records. And so it's um, it's not for everyone. And I think a lot of times when people say it's not for everyone, they're sort of making, you know, it's sort of a backwards compliment or backwards insult about the person who they're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, condescending. About their taste. Yeah, yeah it's a condescending <laughs> way of saying, oh, well, you might not like, you're not sophisticated enough for this. That's not quite what I mean. I just mean like this kind of music is both sides of this of this music are just I mean they're just particular tastes that you may
1: not be it's not it's not universal music I would say there are bands that you come to when you're a child that you've heard all your life. You know, you know acts that are on the radio, that are on MTV, that are uh, you, know, you know just ubiquitous. And then there are acts that you you discover when you're in that phase. If you're a real big music lover, you're in that phase in, in high school and in college, where you uh, you know you you're like, oh, I'm I'm exploring these genres. I'm getting into this arty stuff, this weird stuff. I'm deepening my roots, in whatever it is, I'm listening to. Talk Talk was neither of those things to me. And it's very strange in fact that I would feel this strongly about a band that I found relatively late in my life. I didn't discover Talk Talk. No, even really the first thing about them until 2005. It's my my first year of law school of all things. And that's not a significant, you know, detail except that I still remember like sitting in a Borders books where I had remember borders that was a thing yeah. um yeah. where where i just bought you know i read some random recommendations somewhere hey you should really get these they they are big influence on radiohead i think that was actually my int- my intro to them so i bought spirit of eden and laughing stock at the same time you know, got to put that student loan money to good use. And I just <laughs> spent any listening? of your loan money
0: on actual schooling or, or all on music? Because every one of your uh, stories is, is somehow involves spending your loan money on
1: music. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I ate a lot of Kraft macaroni and cheese, which, which accounts somewhat for my present form. Um so, yeah, <laughs> that did explain it. When my when my wife met me, uh, she was laughing at the fact that I was still eating uh, basically a diet that consisted 100% of bagel bites and hot pockets. <laughs> so, yeah, I was pretty uncivilized back then. And, yeah, the money the money went into music because music is what mattered to me. I found this band, and with a minute I heard Spirit of Eden. It was the first one I got. Um, I just could not comprehend what it was I was listening to. It, it's almost as if I was dealing with alien music music from another civilization or another planet uh from some other world and yet it wasn't entirely alien to me at all this is music that made perfect sense i thought it was very melodic and very beautiful and and intensely interesting and intensely moving but it was unlike anything i had heard up until that point even you know i was told like oh yeah this band was a big influence on radiohead and i kept staring at the copyright date on the back of the cd the Mm. flipping thing says 1988 on it and i'm like this thing came out when i was eight years old (laughs) like what was playing on radio in 1988. This is nothing like any music that was being made in 1988. And I have always been fascinated by the idea that Talk Talk is a band that is still ahead of its time. It is still the sound of the future. There's only one other group that I feel like I can say that about and that would be My Bloody Valentine on Loveless, uh, which is from 1991. And you listen to a song like Soon and it still sounds like some sort of Japanese techno-industrial future. Uh, Talk Talk sounds like the exact opposite like some sort of um like you know if if the premise of the song nothing but flowers by talking head suddenly came true and we all went back to nature this is the music that would be played there <laughs> it, it is it is otherworldly it is so incredibly um premonition-like in the way that it predicted post-rock genres that hadn't really e- even come into existence yet. And But more importantly than all that, it is such profoundly mu- moving music. And then I went back and I got The Color of Spring, and I was like, well, this album is every bit as good as the other ones. And then I went back through their entire discography. I got the entire thing, and I was, I was and remain absolutely awed by the majesty of their career arc to start in the place that they started, to end in the place that they ended, to be so different. Uh, from their beginning to their ending and yet so similar so much the same there's such a, an, a a common through line that runs through everything Mark Hollis who's the lead singer and songwriter of Talk Talk did that it, it is an absolute joy to listen to this music and and to appreciate this evolution of a man simply deciding what he wanted to do and saying, I am willing to retreat from the mainstream. I'm willing to retreat from commercial success. If I can do what it is that I feel like I artistically need to do. And he did it and he got it done. This wasn't, you know, effort in vain. This wasn't wasted time. Uh, The music that, that Mark Hollis has left us from the, from the parties over all the way to his self-titled solo album in 1998, is a legacy that I'm just so happy is there. And I I will be the guy who says, okay, this should be for everyone. I I get what Ezekiel is saying. It's not for everyone. But by God, it should be for everyone. And I'm going to be that guy who's going to try to push it on folks, which is basically what I've been doing in real life and even on Twitter (laughs) for the last, like, seven years.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly – it's certainly the kind of band that you end up evangelizing about, even even if you um, are sort of not evangelical about music. Um, it's special. Sort of try to yeah, you you sort of try to figure out a way to get people to like give it a chance. Uh,
1: there's a lot of like there's a lot of good power pop out there that I like, and I'll be like yeah, hey, you'd like this. There's a lot of good like chunky rock you know some good hip-hop there's a lot of country yeah. music. there's a lot of the, all these things there's nothing out there that sounds like talk talk actually that isn't necessarily true ezekiel even shared with me recently a mix that he made hmm. of like artists that were influenced by talk talk or sound very <laughs> similar to that style he, he put together this, this wonderfully curated mix that i'll have to link in the show notes um Proving that you can just see where their roots have spread, you know the branches just sort of creep slowly outwards. Again, these 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 plant images and nature images are perfect for this band because they use them so much in their work. But yeah, anyways, listen, I, I I'm going to be rambling on for the entire show if you don't shut me up now. So we should start.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think one last thing I want to say about about what you just said about Talk Talk's influence. I think, I mean, the premise of that mix was. Um, You hear so much about Talk Talk is so influential. And yet, like, when you go to, like, particular bands that Talk Talk is said to have influenced and you listen to the music, it's like, it's not really like Talk Talk. It's like the spirit of them, maybe, but it doesn't really sound like them. Mm -hmm. And so part of that, the premise of this mix was, like, trying to figure out how how is it that band sound like talk talk can i it was like a challenge to myself can i actually assemble a mix (laughs) of music that really um sounds like them so it's sort of premised by that what you're saying that this music sounds so otherworldly um and so disconnected from the music of its time but even music today that it was it was it was quite a challenge to come up to to create that mix it took me I don't know, two years maybe of wow. listening to music. Yeah. So this is like a long, long
1: term. <laughs> well, now we're definitely linking it in the show notes. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Scott, I'm going to have to send you a copy after we're done here. Yeah. It's really remarkable stuff. I, I have, I'm so impressed with it. It even repurposes like songs that you'll know by like bands that you'll know. There's like some Miles Davis that gets dropped in. there's a Radiohead yeah. song. There's, you know, I think Van Morrison, but it but he finds those moments where like, Oh yeah, you know, it really does sound a lot like classic. era are a talk talk. Doesn't it? But anyways, enough of this. Enough well, of me, uh, just, you know, fan battling.
0: I, I is... have, I'll give you the chance to ramble again in, the, in a moment about the first album. I will point out, though, that, it, you know, via Ezekiel's uh, comment and, and a little bit of Jeff, you know, Ezekiel said, if you don't like synth pop, the first two albums aren't for you. You don't like uh, post-rock, then the last two albums. And, and listeners know, and, and Jeff knows by this point, those those two genres, not in my wheelhouse. So I will be a, an interesting <laughs> test case, perhaps, for how outsiders will come to this band and if you do it in order, then you're going to get the first album first, which is, uh, which is where I hand things off to Jeff.
1: All right. Well, the the first album is from 1982. So this is this is a band that comes out of a movement in, in Great Britain that was known as the New Romantics. Uh, you think of Boy George. Think of Flock of Seagulls. Think of you know Iran, Iran So Far, that kind of stuff. Uh, think of maybe even Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Some of the early Depeche Mode even kind of it moves in that in that same genre. Uh, the opportunities here were uh, for either extreme transcendence or extreme chintziness. Uh, when you're playing around with synthesizers, particularly in that that decade, that harrowed decade of unfortunate production choices known as the 1980s, boy, you can end up sounding incredibly dated and <laughs> incredibly unfortunate uh, when people go back to listen to it, say, 20 years, 30 years later. Talk Talk's first album is The Party's Over, and this is them in their most primitive. So you have Mark Hollis, who's the lead singer-songwriter. You have Lee Harris on drums. You have, ah, uh, darn, I'm I'm trying to, oh, uh, Paul Webb on bass and then Simon Brenner uh, on guitars. And this is a band that, even in its earliest synth pop, new romantic form, clearly sounded different from everything else that was out there. The, the, the hit from this is the self titled track called talk talk all you ever do is talk talk you, you certainly heard it i think playing you know on vh1 or on the radio and an oldies thing uh, certainly if you're you know a certain age maybe if you're really a millennial perhaps you haven't heard it uh but it also gives rise to one of my favorite little uh, uh factoids which is that uh, in america the album was retitled talk talk so you got the trifecta with the rare trifecta (laughs) you have the hit single talk talk off of the album talk talk by the band talk talk uh which i think only bad company to my knowledge ever really recreated (laughs) you know bad company by bad company from the hit album bad company um this album is is not their best how could it be it's their beginnings it It has, I think, a little bit too much of the drum machine stiffness, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also stacks too much of its best material on the first side. But but I will insist that all of the elements of what they would become are here, if hidden, right at the beginning. And the actual title track, Talk, Talk, the Song is, is uh, ridiculously catchy. It's, it's hard not to like. Even if you just treated this band as a novelty act with that one-hit single, that would be a damn good one-hit wonder if that was who they were. I like that, and I also really think Today is the other song that deserves to be singled out from this one.
3: Excuse me, why?
1: I think it's also fair to say that, you know, they were going to get a lot better from here on out.
0: And I, I will agree. I think, you know, Talk Talk, the single, the the song, that's about as good as, you, as I hear from this era of synth pop, right? That's about as good as it gets in terms of being a, a marketable pop song that perhaps should have been a bigger hit. It's just a really good song. Funky slap. Bass inside, and I love that piano break in the song as well. Talk Talk is a really good tune. I um, wanted to mention Mirror Man, um, which also uses synth effectively. It's a, set, I think, seven-note repeating kind of uh, uh, pattern through the song. And I hear almost a little bit of the early cars on Mirror Man with the, the use of the synth. Maybe uh, kind of like a moving in stereo type thing. And I also uh, I had to clarify with Jeff on this. The, the B-side of the single for Mirror Man... Which is available on the on the on the on the uh, album which is what a sides besides i believe is the name of it uh yeah which which mm. collects all these things from talk talk called strike up the band it's one of my favorite songs <laughs> from these first two talk talk albums uh, a big chorus. It is still very 80s. Uh, I think electronic drums, I believe, used on "Strike Up the Band," but it's still. You're a my...
1: big fan of those massed vocals, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: but still, one of my favorite <laughs> tunes from these first two albums. And I also will mention "Candy," which I, is a, it might be the last song on the album. Yeah, it is. But I like that one quite a bit. It does have a, a, a an atmospheric feel to it. If you stripped it a bit, I think it might fit on some of the later albums. And every now and then, you'll hear some of these songs early in the career that you know if the change it a bit and strip it down. It would fit later. I think candy would fit later on in the career Uh, as is a very rubbery baseline. It's a pretty song and I love the use of the piano on candy. So um, for a, for a non synth pop lover uh, I think this is, this is a really good synth pop album, even if it's not the best the band would eventually put out.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think um, the thing about this first album is um, there's sort of, a line between a band, a like production tro- and arrangement choices that sound of their time, which is fine, and production and arrangement choices that sound dated. And I feel like this album is straddling that line, um, and probably is a little bit too is is a little dated. False villain. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. The songs that are on this album, um, you can hear the strength of uh, Mark Hollis's songwriting and it's sort of constrained by its time mm. um, in a way that even It's My Life is is less so. Um, but I, like Scott said, I think you can still see, and I think one of Jeff and I's premises about Talk Talk's narrative is like, you can still see where the band is going next um in some of the songs on this album and um that's part of why even if you don't like synth pop music but let's say you're interested in later talk 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 talk, talk albums why you might want to give this album a shot um in spite of sort of the cheap sounding synthesizers sort of Thudding, drum machines, Hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is an album that doesn't even have, like, a full-time guitarist. Simon Brenner is on here playing synthesizers. Right. So it's, you know, synth-based drum um, band, and the synthesizers are... uh, the, The lines themselves are often pretty mechanical. The synth sounds that they're using sound sort of tinny at times, but still you can see, like... The good songwriting shining through on many of the tracks.
1: That brings us naturally and necessarily to the next Talk Talk album, which is, again, as we mentioned at the introduction, probably if there is a way that non-fans, especially Americans, know Talk Talk, it's because of the title track of their next album, which is It's My Life. Uh, It's My Life is a great song. Uh, You know it most likely from the Gwen Stefani cover of it. You know, it's my life. Don't you forget never ends. Um, Beautiful song, really poppy. And I vastly prefer the original version of it, but I vastly prefer this album as a whole. To the party's over, and I've come to think the more I listen to it, I always say The Color of Spring is their most underrated album, Uh, but I don't think it's underrated. I think it's actually just their best album, period. This one, actually, I've come to believe is really underrated uh, because it doesn't sound – nearly as dated in the same way that uh, The Party's Over sounds. Uh, you've got songs here that are frankly better, in my opinion, than It's My Life. I think Dumb Dumb Girl, which is the song that opens this, it's it's co-written with a guy who would become very prominent in Talk Talk's story named Tim Freeze Green, um, is just an absolutely glorious and also naggingly ominous uh, hmm. pop smash hit about I'm not even sure what it's about. It obviously seems to be about some sort of girl who uh, isn't all there and isn't all there with it at all the time. But the synthesizer sounds here, the organs—it's not just synths; it's organs, Mm -hmm. and it's everything. The fretless bass, fretless bass is all over this album. It sounds like. It sounds like they might have, you know, hired you know, you know, Tony Levin to play or something like that. But uh, it is a glorious sound that does not date in nearly the same way, despite the fact that it's very glossy and very synthy and very synthesizer ish as uh, the party's over. And all these songs you see him you see Mark Hollis slowing down and getting weirder and getting more epic. <laughs> such a shame is the second song on the album and it has this thing where it spends like a full minute just building up from a little you know a, a metronomic tick tick, tick. You know, drum track until this, you know, band of white noise starts like swirling in over the horizon. And then boom, it goes into the song. You you can see that he's thinking about dynamics and he's thinking about okay, I'm going to structure a sonic experience and not just put together a pop hit. Uh, Renee, tomorrow started. Tomorrow started is a song where the hook on that song is carried by this really sad, screeching guitar that kind of you know oscillates between high and low notes. Trust me, when you hear it, it sounds remarkable. I'm just
3: but, you take, oh, the they never to be but it's not a
1: perfect. Outcome. Obviously, I think, does Caroline know, is just like a throwaway. I don't like It's You. I don't like the way this album ends. I also think that Call in the Night Boy, which is a good song on this album, was vastly superior on its B side version, which came out a year before this. They had a non album single called My Foolish Friend. Good song. Not, you know, nothing to really like spend a lot of time on. But on the B side of it was this thing called Call in the Night Boy. And mm-hmm. it's just Mark Hollis sitting alone at a piano. With an acoustic bass playing in the background and some weird sort of ambient noises, singing this very kind of weirdly structured and weirdly, you know, harmonically or melodically constructed ballad, and then he, you know, goes into a, uh, you know, a more upbeat chorus, and it sounds exactly like something off of *Spirit of Eden*, something that could have come off of even Laughingstock or the Mark Hollis album, and there in 1983, you have a preview of everything that this guy was going to do. And it just goes to show you that they knew what they were going to do. Anyways, again, here I am rambling. I'm going to just <laughs> try to self-censor myself. I think this is a much better album. This is the first Talk Talk album that I really actually enjoy listening to all the way through as a record.
2: Yeah, this album, I think, is it's a lot more sure-footed than the first record. And you can already hear the band kind of turning into what they would become. Um, and I think I think it's also, you pointed out in when we were talking about the party's over that, that album is front loaded. Um, I think this album, it's my life is a lot more, it's not as a lot better paced. It's a well paced album. It's a better sequenced album. Um, whereas the party's over is more or less like here are some songs on a record. <laughs> um, and I think if you listen to, um, if you listen to talk, talk in, chronological order which is really you know that's the if you're all in on on giving talk talk a chance I think it's very rewarding to listen to it in chronological order um you can immediately hear when dum Dum girl starts that it's the, the album is so much more mature um, and it's so much more intuitive um, where the first album like, you can sort of see them straining against the against the production of the time. You don't really hear that here. Um, this is the first um, uh, right off the bat in the first song. You can you can see that they're sort of aware of um, dynamic range. <laughs> like the <this> song <laughs> doesn't have to be the same volume the whole time. It could be quiet and loud and quiet. Um, and it's sort of the chorus even is kind of. Has a weird cadence to it Um, And I think it's important to realize Like From I mean even from the Parties over when Mark Hollis would be interviewed about The stuff that he was listening to and Influenced him even at even when He's recording these synth pop albums He's still name checking Like Ornette Coleman As like an influence So um, Even though the band isn't Like didn't emerge like fully formed embryonic out of Mark Hollis's head. Like um, the things that would, this band would become are still evident in these songs. Uh, Like uh, Jeff was saying, like such a shame. The intro of that song could come from any part of like the later part of talk talks um, discography. I think the solo of like sparse weird process solo in such a shame could easily come from late period talk talk so you have like these um little hints of the later band um that you hear when you're listening to this album um renee uh uh you can in the, I think this is the first talk. I think Renee is the first talk talk song with like a real brass instrument on it, um, where they're not using like some sort of like synth, synth brass preset. <laughs> <Right>.
3: um,
2: <laughs> and you can sort of see them um, on that song, start starting to subtract things from 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 the arrangements, um, and starting to sort of learn restraint um, in a way that they don't have in, in the first album. Jeff said this is the first Talk Talk album that I feel like it's just a genuinely good album. Like, if they had just, if this is the only Talk Talk album you hear, it's still just a solid album on its own, separated from the narrative of Talk Talk's career. I think I will differ from Jeff, and I think, I really do think It's My Life is. I still think it's the best song from this album. I mean, I think maybe it's a little bit too familiar, but I think that chorus is sort of undeniable. Like the, the chorus of Dumb Dumb Girl, is, it's a good chorus. It's not really a single, it's a pop song, but it's not really a sing-along pop song chorus where It's My Life is. And I feel like just as pop songs, which at the at their core, these songs are still all pop songs. I feel like It's My Life is a better song. Um, I think one thing, one thing that we should probably point out too is like, as Jeff said, um, even when you listen to the, uh, the parties over, it's and this and this album as well. There's sort of a melancholy at their core that differentiates themselves from sound like bands from this era. Mm. Um, I mean, you can even see it just like looking at the song titles. Like, this is not, like, sugary um, 80s music. (laughs) Like, um, and the songs themselves uh, kind of back that up.
1: I've listened to a lot of synth pop. And a lot of you know of this this sort of goofy early '80s era, some of the more unfortunate bands as well as the good ones. And it is absolutely correct what Ezekiel says that there's just there's something about the production, the sounds. Maybe it's the keyboard sounds. Maybe it's you know they're at EMI and they're working with you know these these top shelf producers and engineers. I think that actually is true. Um, yeah. Nothing. Nothing sounds quite like this. Nothing at all. It doesn't have the same sort of um, disposability disposable sound that so much of the other pop stuff especially the synth pop stuff had a kind of a cheap aesthetic uh, a very ephemeral aesthetic you know listen to it dance it dance to it on the dance floor it's just good time music talk talk was just always onto a much more melancholy vein and yeah you're absolutely right that you really do first start hearing it here um but scott uh you Tell us, tell us that this is the album that converted you to a lover of the
0: band. No, that this is not that album, but it is a, a good album. And and off of Ezekiel's comments and it's my life. Look, uh, I think that 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 no doubt song was probably my first exposure to, uh, the band and, and, and the cover song, and, and that might be my second, first or second favorite no doubt song. And it is because the original is very very good. It has a quality to it that I, I. I feel like I've heard it before, not that it's been, it's 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 been copied from someone else necessarily, but it's like it's always existed. that just that 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 chorus is so good and it it feels like I've heard it before, even though I haven't. It's got a great bass line and a, a warm synth tone to it. I really like it's it's my life. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's sort of a classic song, and that's probably what what makes you feel like you've heard it before. Especially yeah. the chorus is sort of a, a classic pop chorus, um, earworm type pop chorus. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: it's. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Jeff disposability because uh, in Have you heard the news? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he uh, specifically name checks that. He says something like. You know I'm so disposable. You can throw me away. Um, I don't know if that's an intentional thing or not. Like whether he's conscious of what's, of what, uh, the surface, the surface of Talk Talk, and sort of the bands that they sound like, like the impression that it's creating. Um, but I thought I would, I would point that out.
0: Well, I, sorry, Scott, you were gonna say. Uh, I was, just, I was just gonna uh, mention a few other tunes from the album. One Go I, for one, it. Yeah, one I wanted, uh, Renee. Um, there's, an, there's an ache in his vocals I think there's also progression from just the vocal delivery from that first album to the second album which is very noticeable um, and Renee is one of those that just has this elegance to it that of course show up on, on, on later work um, It's You uh, which I think might be the last song on the album I think it has some single qualities to it it's got an aggressive edge uh, there's a clear guitar sound to it which again at that time uh, probably fit in very well and the last one I wanted to mention, and, and Jeff had, had briefly talked about, Does Caroline Know? And I don't think it's a great song either. But I do wonder and kind of hope that it's a reference to the Beach Boys song, Caroline Know, from Pet Sounds. And the more I listen to it, the more I think it is, though I have no evidence, uh, no direct evidence, because both songs, Does Caroline Know and Caroline Know, start with this sparse percussion uh, t- to the song. And so I like to think that it was it was some sort of a nod, a, a tip of the cap to... The Beach Boys song from, what, at that point, about 20 years prior.
1: We were talking about disposability, you know, and of course on Have You Heard the News, you know, Mark Hollis singing, Am I Disposable? Am I Disposable or Not? Well, if there was any question uh, about what kind of music Talk Talk was making, uh, was it disposable? Was it just sort of, you know, ephemeral new romantic synth pop? That was completely out of the, you know, that was gone. That was blown away. By their next release. This is 1986 now. The album is called The Color of Spring. At the beginning of the show, Ezekiel said, Hey, you know, if you don't like synth pop, uh, well, you're probably not going to like Talk Talk's first two <laughs> albums. If you don't like post rock, well, you're probably not going to like Talk Talk's last two albums. I noticed, though, he didn't mention anything about that one in the middle. <laughs> yeah. That one in the middle, number three, it's called The Color of Spring. And um, this is the moment where. Uh, It's almost difficult to look back and recognize the band that started in 1982 with the parties over and recognize the same group. They're so different now. Uh, This is, in my opinion, the best thing that they ever did Um, and, of course, the the next – three albums that are coming I think are, are almost equal triumphs so I'm not damning them in any way when I say that this one uh, is sort of underrated music hipsters usually say well you know you should go start with Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock. those are the ones that are really seminal records I say no 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 you must own the color of spring i would recommend this album to anyone and before i suck up all the points that everyone else would like to make i'm going to actually just defer to ezekiel let you let you go first because uh this album is the one i could spend the entire hour on if you ask me
2: yeah i mean i think uh this album is the most universal talk talk album i think this is the one that i Um, when I'm the least certain about someone's particular music taste that I'm most comfortable recommending. Um, And I think this is also like the first, the, the beginning of Happiness is Easy. Is like the first payoff to listening to the discography in order. Like when the piano line and the bass and guitar flourishes come in over the over the beat, it's like totally different <laughs> from <laughs> the previous two records. It sounds so organic. Um, it sounds so and sets the tone for the rest of the album. It sounds so lush um, in a way that the the first two albums. Don't sound those albums sound they can sound layered. Um, there's moments where those albums sound layered, um, but there's not albums where um, you sort of feel like this is the first time I think that they live up to the sort of pastoral nature imagery that they um, name check on some that they not name check, but they visually reference on on their album sleeves. Um, it sounds like Music from, I don't know, the Garden of Eden (laughs) or, you know, the end of the world or the new millennium or whatever sort of uh, transcendent uh, place in history that you want to pick. But at the same time, uh, it's very human music. Like when you listen to um, Unhappiness is Easy Again, um, the boys choir... That singing in the chorus of sort of doing a call and response with uh, Mark Hollis's vocals, there's they're a little bit out of tune. Like, it's not perfect. Um, and for some reason, that just like raises the music from good to sort of sublime it makes it even more touching these, these, yeah. these
1: it is these innocent little ch- school children singing you know mm-hmm. you know little ships of galilee standing on the sea jesus tried to love us all be a friend to me and like oh you're like oh my god you melt it's just like oh the purity of this emotion <laughs> of this sentiment uh, gets me every damn time
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think um, at the same time, like, these are just like really good, sturdy pop songs, like hooky, um, you know, the chorus sticks in your head kind of pop songs. Um, and I think that's where... This album is different, and part of the reason why you you recommend why you would you might recommend this album over the last two albums is like it's extremely accessible. Um, even though it's really good, could, you can make an argument that it's their best record. Um, it's it's accessible at the same time, whereas the last two albums are almost as good, maybe maybe better, depending on who you talk to, um, but they are considerably less accessible. Um, and it's interesting too I, I, uh, EMI When they heard this album They Were like we can't sell this <laughs> and This ended up being their best Their their, their album that probably did, did the best commercially But they said we can't sell this we need a single And so Mark Hollis Wrote the third song on this album um, Life's what you make it to satisfy this um, desire for a pop single to sell the album, which is also funny because like, you don't think of Mark Hollis as someone who you would go to and say like, can you write a hit on demand? (laughs) But apparently he was okay with it to get a sort of a challenge and delivered what I think is a great song.
1: singles on this album too yeah i think this album <laughs> yeah. delivered
2: the most the most singles most hit singles out of, out of out of any of their
1: albums give it up living in another world and happiness is easy all guy releases singles all of them did pretty well and all they're all fantastic songs but yeah, yeah. life's what you make it is clearly like the big hit single and i think was their best charting one Scott, uh, before I blast off in outer space, uh, do you want to answer
0: your thoughts? Yeah. Th- so, you know, Jeff and I had emailed after I began going through the Talk Talk collection. And he said, what do you think? And I said, you know, the beginning, I don't know. And I said, man, this third album, The Color of Spring, it really knocked me on my butt look this is uh, an accessible album this is an album that uh, I don't I don't know how it is not sort of in the the canon of 80s rock you know you got to buy these t- 10 albums to understand uh rock and roll in the 80s um, color of spring is so good it, it, it's organic sounding right and, and, and then we get more organic in the next two albums but you know, there's acoustic piano and guitar, and there's Hammond, you know, organ, and Steve Winwood plays on tracks on this album. And the song that really did it for me was the is, is the second song on the album, I, I Don't Believe in You. That's the one that said that that's you know, flipped that switch in my mind and man, this is really excellent music. I don't believe in you. Again, has those organic qualities. Guitar, piano, organ. Winwood plays. And um, the chorus of it. I like, I like how it just hangs there. I expect, because, you know, the chorus is uh, I Don't Believe You, and I want there to be something else, but there's not. And Hollis just leaves it there for, for a few uh, beats. And I, I, I love that. There's a great guitar solo from Robbie McIntosh on I, I Don't Believe in You. I, I think it might be my favorite song from the entire Talk Talk collection. <laughs> ¶¶ It's not just that song. There are highlights up and down this album. Living in Another World is almost seven minutes long, and, and the songs will get longer as we go through this discography here. But what a great tune. It's got a pounding groove to it that I love. It's kind of a cyclical musical structure to it. Harmonica. There's a key change that, that kicks off the chorus that is that is great. It's a really tremendous song. Uh, I mentioned Time It's Time, which, which is right at the tail end of the album. Uh, tribal chants and harmonica, and I think it's a perfect close to the album because it does kind of, I think, point the way to Spirit of Eden, which would come next. Um, and Jeff had mentioned Life's What You Make of It, which is, you know, the, the single that was kind of written for the album, and it sounds like a single. Or it sounds like a, a song that would that would sell if need be. Color of Spring, the album uh, on on the whole, and I don't believe in you specifically as a song. Man, this is the this is the this is the stuff. This is the one that that. Uh, That really spoke to me and 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 said this is a this is a great band
1: buy this album people that's how i'm going to start this this lecture here buy this album (laughs) you need to own this album um i'm gonna end it the same way too what is it about the color of spring that amazes me well there are so many different things about this album that amaze me first of all just speaking on a on a a, you know bird's eye view a, a retrospective view i am fascinated by the way it stands perfectly as a midpoint in talk talk's career looking forward looking backward reflecting who they had been reflecting who they would become reflecting who they were at that moment and this could not have been planned i mean you know i'm sure that mark hollis had a vision of the kind of music he wanted to make in his life but there's no way anybody can figure out like you know six years in advance what music they're going to be doing it doesn't work that way so it's pure happenstance or maybe just an absolutely organic development uh That the color of spring sounds has elements of you know uh, the party 's over and it 's my life, and it has sounds that s- directly prefigure spirit of Eden and laughing stock like like April fifth in particular um and yet it is its own thing, its own singular creation. What is the big advance? on the color of spring over its earlier stuff well ezekiel mentioned it it's acoustic instruments this is an album where i learned to appreciate string bass like nothing else (laughs) acoustic bass you have it right there in the opening song in happiness is easy uh you know it's that this is just a different sound that you get a different tone that comes from playing an acoustic pace you know an upright uh as opposed to electric bass which is what is featured uh, on a lot of most of the other songs on this record but would increasingly vanish from the talk talk repertoire they became very much a string bass band which kind of tells you how they progressed away from rock music the songs on this record are just masterpieces Scott already talked about I don't believe in you what I love about I don't believe in you is how considered it is it's slow and it walks through its changes with such considered precision every single guitar lick there's a lot of acoustic guitar licks that are dropped in throughout that song they're perfectly perfectly chosen everything is in its right place and then right at the end uh, you know when he's uh, saying you you know any way that you say it um, I, I, the last chorus, right before he goes into "I don't believe in you," finally out of the uh, the middle eight, uh, a horn section, just dimly heard in the background, comes in, and you realize that. They don't need to pot it up, make it super loud. They just let it sort of play quietly in the background. Uh, any way that you play it, the charade goes on, and then you just hear it softly tooting away in there, and they realize that, yeah, yeah, we, we, we could you know, raise the levels on that and make it you know, the overwhelming element that you hear in the song, but no, no, it's far more effective if it's just sort of a ghost in your head, an echo that you hear and that you can't quite put a finger on, which, of course, brings me to a song like April 5th. Mm-hmm. April 5th is barely a song. It just sort of hovers there like a wraith in front of your eyes. And, you know, there you, you were a few changes. There were a few sort of emotional moods. It's a tone poem. And then it just disappears. And then uh, after you think, well, that was a very interesting, it was clear prefiguring of Spirit of Eden, as I said, then boom, straight up pop with Living in Another World. Yeah. Seven minutes long. And it's just like a dance floor rave up in a way. And then Slinkiness with Give It Up. I love the way that song just keeps developing. It's it's sort of pop hook. You think the pop hook is going to be the gotta give it up chorus, but then it keeps going, and then you realize it's, no, is the hook going to be the, oh, give it up, give it up? No. It's the tell me what I've done wrong. Right at the end, he goes and he develops one more melodic idea out of that chorus when you're least expecting it, and it just shows you that the songwriting style that Mark Hollis had started to work with, with Tim Freeze Green mm-hmm. on these albums, was just really kind of... Um, well, oh, the word I'm looking for here is, it's it's really a, de- de- a delayed and very methodical and very you know, uh, very considered way of explaining and you know expounding upon his ideas. Last thing I wanna say about this, again, I could spend the entire episode just talking about the color of spring. Time it's time. Maybe, uh in in you know, it's hard to pick, right? This may be my single favorite talk talk song of all time. I think it may be time. It's time. Time. It's time is is eight minutes long, and it starts, and you you know, you hear kind of like a what sounds like a, a, a drum track, and the pianos and synths come in, and you know Mark Hollis starts singing in that inscrutable way. Uh, by the way, I'll say this: I've never actually known the lyrics, the full lyrics <laughs> to any single Talk Talk song, because you know as you'll you'll have already figured this out if you're listening to the podcast, because you know we'll be playing the clips. But Mark Hollis, is a Truly a phenomenon, a sound. The way he sings, it sounds like he's enveloping his own breath with every note that comes out of his mouth. He sounds like he's swallowing his own face. (laughs) So like, I don't (laughs) know what the lyrics to Time It's Time are. I've never known them my entire life. All I know is that chorus – where suddenly this sort of soothing pacific kind of ballad breaks into the piano starts playing this very nagging riff you know this nagging little two note little interchange and then as bad as bad becomes it's not a part of you and love is only sleeping wrapped in neglect and then this massive church chorus comes in it's like carmina friggin burana all right (laughs) there it's like you know you know oh fortuna and all that and then they're like Time, it's time to live. Time, it's time to live through the pain. And you think, well, this is what the song is about. This is what the focus is. And then one step higher, they throw in this weird kind of like out-of-tune harmonica solo. Who figured out that color? What a brilliant color to add. And then at the end of it, a children's recorder comes in and starts playing the same little piano thing in a higher key The harmonica starts playing out of tune behind it, and yet it all comes together into this glorious miasma of sound. I know I sound like I'm ranting, but we're going to drop the clip of this damn song in here. You will (laughs) understand why this is such – it's an absolutely tremendous musical moment. And um, the moment where I think Mark Hollis realized that you know I can paint – I can paint with sound. I can use instruments in uncharacteristic ways, get them to play notes that shouldn't be necessarily the notes you think would belong there, and make something truly joyful out of it. Time It's Time is a masterpiece on a masterpiece of an album. I'm just so happy that, that this thing exists in my life.
2: One thing about The Color of Spring um, is that this is the first time that you think that you, it really feels like Mark Hollis is making the music that he wants to make. Like this is the stuff that he's actually hearing in his head. Um, And you can, you can hear when you listen to demos of previous Talk Talk songs. And when you listen to the live album that was recorded on the, on the Color of Spring tour, when you listen to the live versions of the songs from the previous two albums, they sound so much better than they do on the record. And I feel like it's because sort of the arrangements, the production choices, um, that even the instruments that they're choosing just match his sensibilities much better than the synths and the sort of mechanical synthesizer arrangements of of the previous two albums which i mean i love mechanical synthesizer arrangements don't get me wrong they just aren't i, I just don't feel like they they match mark Hollis's, um sensibilities as well as the organic um uh, organic style that they that they developed later
1: i mean it feels like you know I don't know, Mark Hollis is notoriously reclusive, and so, like, you know, I don't know if anybody ever asked him this question, but I've always felt that, like, he had to work with the keyboards and the synthesizers of the early synth-pop stuff, and in working with those, he, he got a sense of the palette, the musical palette that he liked, and he wanted to, to, to bring to the music, and they said, well, um, why don't I actually do this in an organic and authentic way? But it was by working with those keyboards like on the horn setting. He said, well, why don't I use the horn setting on my keeper why don't i just get real horns you know which is exactly what he ha- what happens first Another the color of spring and then oh my on spirit of eden uh you know scott you're you're a big post-rock fan i know this is one of your favorite albums you want to intro spirit of eden for us
0: so look i um i don't know if this will surprise you i really i really enjoyed spirit of eden so it's you know surprises every now and then on, on the show um Look, it is a big jump or a big. You know, it's, it, there's a different sound from The Color of Spring, The Spirit of Eden. It's connected, but but it's different. These are all longer songs. There are about six songs on the album. Most are 70 minutes long. Everything is kind of stretched out and elongated. But I tell you what, The Rainbow starts, and I could not turn away. I could not turn it off. I could not skip the track. The Rainbow draws you in and i don't i I don't i can't be technical about this i can't tell you exactly why but it does there are four minutes of music or so until the lyrics start in in the rainbow uh there is this juxtaposition of of noise and beauty which would of course would, would follow through on a lot of the tracks on this album it's a very rough harmonica in the rainbow but it that song completely had my attention. That song totally drew me in for its entire length. And you know, Spirit of Eden split into songs, but really it's about the whole thing, right? Because the rainbow blends into the, the next song, which I think is Desire, and, and things things work together in these arrangements. Um, I do like Desire quite a bit as well. Again. Something there's a quote that I wrote down here, and I'm sure everyone's well not talk talk fans know it silence is the most important thing you have one notes better than two spirits everything technique is always secondary, you know, this album was 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 kind of pieced together Um, a lot of the the, the things that were played were sort of off the cuff and then you go back and see how things work together Uh, desire has these giant tonal shifts to it the up-tempo sections i think are wonderful and right near the end with about 90 seconds to go this this drum percussion breakdown i just i just love it so these first two tracks of spirit of eden the rainbow and desire which again really work together in tandem boy i like those tracks an awful lot and i'm not a post-rock fan the one thing i want to go back to quickly before you guys have at it is um Jeff had mentioned the uh the, Mark Hollis's vocals in his delivery and I will say it's the one I guess criticism I have is Spirit of Eden and especially Laughingstock, Stock. You know, everything is so sparse. Uh everything, you know, silence plays such a big role. You have to kind of give yourself to the album to 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 appreciate what's going on. If I'm giving myself my my full attention to what's going on, I I'd like to hear some of the words. <laughs> and and look the lyrics can be very hard to decipher on this album in particular i believe in you not i don't believe in you that was last album this is i believe in you, different song i don't know anything it has to be intentional though by the way Yeah,
2: yeah also mark hollis um when he his his process when he's when he's recording these songs the lyrics are like the last thing that are written and but it's not he writes the lyrics after he's decided sort of the pronunciations of what he's going to sing hmm. so like the sound of the sound of the vocal not, well, not what it means but like the sound of the vocal combined with the melody that was what was uh had primacy it wasn't the lyrics so that's part of the reason why especially as you you know as you go later on through through talk talks discography i think starting on this album for sure um also a little bit on the color of spring like it's often very hard to distinguish what he's saying partially because he didn't it's it, it did not have it was not a priority what what the songs are saying was not a priority to him and so that's sort of why part of the reason why like it's not comprehensible like i think starting from this album. Um, until the end, like I don't know full, even though I've listened to these to these albums a lot, I don't know like the lyrics of full songs anymore. <laughs> um, and I think it's important to set it's I think it's sort of important to set the scene for this album because you can sort of see that the le- record label, they are giving talk talk a little bit more rope, Yeah, because the last time they did it on the Color of Spring, they sort of didn't believe in the record. It did really well, and so they're like, "Well, let's you know, let's give them a little bit more rope." And so, you know, they give Talk Talk this budget for these really marathon studio sessions. Like they're working twelve hours a day in, uh, you know the stories that come out of these recording sessions, like they're working in, like, like Jeff said, his setup for <laughs> political beats, like for for political beats recordings, they're working in pitch black with like oil lamps going, oil lamps and like slow strobe lights. And the engineer who's worked on this record, um, he's talking to, he talks about how they would go in for these recording sessions and they would lose. He would lose complete track of time. Mm-hmm. Like he wouldn't know what time of day it was, um, whether how long he'd been in the studio for. So they have like these super. Um, depending on who you talk to in the band, like the some of the engineers say that the the sessions were incredibly like emotionally intense. Some say that they were a little lighthearted. I, I imagine it depends on your point of view. Um, but they have like this super intense process where um, their drummer, where uh, Lee every day he would play drums, drum beats for like an hour, just like drum beats (laughs) before they do anything else. And, and, uh, and then sometimes, uh, you know, the other musicians would come and sort of improvise over these beats. And then a lot of that stuff would get thrown away. And so, I just say all that to say, like when you listen to this record, you don't hear any of that. <laughs> like, it does not sound like a super labored record.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it sounds it sounds pretty like a pretty natural record. I mean, uh, like you're saying, like these songs are sort of abstract, um, and they're pieced together, but it sounds super improv- improvisational, um, even though they have like all these studio musicians coming into the studio and recording uh, stuff which like 90% of the stuff is deleted. They're they're recording these marathon sessions and they're like Mark Hollis and um, the producer, who's at this point sort of uh, a de facto member of the band are sort of selecting like little bits, little bits of these tracks that these musicians are coming and playing in. And they're putting, they're assembling the record out of these it doesn't sound to me, anyway. It doesn't sound like the result of um, sort of an intense, <laughs> this sort of intense process that you that you hear.
0: i um, well, them describing.
2: I, I, you know, I'm a sound.
0: I'm a sound, real quick before Jeff. Take, uh, it's amazing <laughs> to me listening to this album. And again, the first time I listened to the whole thing was just in this past these past two weeks. It, so- it does not sound d- dated at all. The sounds are very contemporary, and it has a timelessness to it, which I'm pretty sure was the point of it all. I mean, getting all these people together and with the mood and the atmosphere and what they were able to put together um, literally stands the test of time, and that if, if you played it for someone today, it would sound fresh. It would sound like something that might have been, have, as Jeff said earlier, have a, a 2018 uh, trademark copyright on the back
1: i don't think it will ever sound dated i i think you're dealing with instruments uh you know in, in particularly the classical instruments like you know you know oboes clarinets choranglies. they i think they got another they got a cathedral choir to sing on the back of i believe in you uh these things are just going to sound uh natural and universal uh they have in the past and they will in the future and there's a reason that you know what you know 30 years later this doesn't sound strange this doesn't sound awkward this doesn't sound labored in any way mm-hmm. um what i wanted to first of all to do is to pick up on on the point that ezekiel made uh, about how this for an album that was assembled out of bits and pieces and scraps and edited together kind of like a, a a late 60s teo Macero production of a miles davis record like in a silent way or or, yeah. Crew or something like that it's amazing how this record you sounds so natural the the other analogy i can think of from sort of the rock world would have been a stevie wonder of all things on songs in the key of life which you know is the album he made after his long layoff he had a car accident he basically was at home in his studio overdubbing every single instrument himself releases a it's like a double album with like an extra bonus disc attached to it, and you think, well, this could sound like it's you know some sort of suffocating studio creation. If you ever listen to songs in the Key of Life, it sounds like one of the most spontaneous things in the world. It sounds just delightfully free and open and completely unplanned. And yet, Stevie Wonder tracked every single one of those things. You know, it probably did four thousand takes on like you know synthesizers and guitars and bass and stuff like that. This is kind of like that, where. It, the, the sheer man-hours of work that had to go into creating the six-song document are uh, – I'm actually just depressed at the thought that they erased those tapes. I was like, man, I want to hear all those outtakes. I would, to, I would listen to 40 hours of Spirit of Eden outtakes. I'm that kind of a guy. Um, but what we are left with is, is a record that just feels completely natural. It feels like uh, some sort of na- nature symphony. Uh, which sounds strange and probably a bit pretentious, but I really do think captures the feel of of a record that is otherwise hard to characterize. I I really kind of sometimes bristle at hearing this described as like, oh, well, this is post-rock. And I don't bristle because I dislike post-rock. I'm actually a really big fan of post-rock. You know, ask me about my Tortoise collection. And my, <laughs> I'm a big fan of Slint. You know, I mean, yes, like I, I'm I'm a big post rock fan, but I don't think this is. I see how it obviously influenced that genre, but this to me shouldn't be put into some kind of box that could potentially cut it off from from people who might otherwise give it a chance. This is just music to me, which is, again sounds like a sort of a a stupid statement, but I really truly believe that you listen to something like uh, Inheritance. Inheritance. I, I tried to describe it last night. I was like, well, how do I describe – I was talking about this on Twitter. I was like, well, how do I explain this song to a person other than to say – how do you sonically describe Inheritance? Inheritance <laughs> sounds like um, that you're being haunted by a ghost that actually loves you and wants you to be happy uh, You know, <laughs> as opposed to like wanting to scare you and frighten you. It, it, it's <laughs> a song where all of its all of its melodic – its motives – its mode of movements are suggested by very subtle changes and its chorus just sort of almost emerges out of nowhere like, like as I said, like a specter materializing in front of your eyes. And then all of a sudden, it dissolves into it was like a four-part woodwind quintet. There's like an oboe, bassoon, clarinet. uh, I think there's maybe like a a, a cor anglais played there. Just like in the middle of the song, boom! Before you even realize it, you realize you're not listening to a single rock instrument. It's just four woodwinds playing in front of your ears. And then before you even registered that, it's back to the song. The transitions of these songs, not only from song to song, but within the songs themselves, are so natural and so so sort of, you know, in, 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 inscrutable. They're so hard to find the distinct sections of every one of these tracks that it makes it feel like it's one giant canvas uh, that that plays out for your ears and you know in your brain and to single out songs on spirit of eden is almost in a way to miss the point mm-hmm. because for example the, i think on the original vinyl uh, which i uh, picked up a copy of finally um it's all one song there's no tracking it, it, the rainbow eden and desire are just boom they're one they're one piece on the second side they actually track them Uh, which I don't know why they made that decision. But I remember looking at it. It's not banded. You're just going to listen to it as one little long, long thing that flows through itself, like a river. It almost feels like the tap head of a river. Speaking of which, we'll get to that (laughs) next album. Uh, But I do want to single out in particular one song, which I think is one of the most glorious things Talk Talk ever did. It's called I Believe in You. Uh, Scott mentioned it, you know, so they couldn't understand what it's about. I believe it's about heroin addiction. I think I believe it's about his brother uh, who was addicted to heroin. Um, and it clearly was meant, the title at least, which is not, I think, in the song mentioned anywhere, um, is meant as sort of a counterpoint to I don't believe in you. Um, and this is just, uh, I think, you know, what's the sound of you know, ascending to heaven? On the backs of angels, you know, you know, what, what, uh, of of passing from one world to the next world. It's the sound of I believe in you. It's the sound of that soft organ coming in, under those those very very kind of measured, you know, uh, cymbal hits. And then the co- the chords of that organ come in. They're really soft. You hear like a guitar amp, or, or somebody I think strikes an errant string on a guitar. It's the kind of thing that would be edited out of any other recording, but they left it in because there's something about like the electricity, the sudden wildness of that, that makes you realize like, Oh, this is, this is not a, you know, a curated studio recording, even though it is, it gives you an incredible illusion of spontaneity. And then when he, he goes into that beautiful chorus, um, you know, just saying, I I think he's basically just saying spirit. I I don't even know the words as as we've talked about. I Hmm. never have known the exact words to that song, but it is, uh, it's a, it's a consolatory song. It feels like a song about mortality. It feels like a song of, uh, of, about death, but not in a grim way, but in a, uh, in a way that it, it's sort of like you know, people sitting beside the bed of someone who's passing away to tell them that they're not alone. strange thing to get out of a song that doesn't mention any of those concepts Uh, but that's what I get from it and that's what I think about this album is that it paints images in your mind Using musical instruments, using production techniques, using even just the emotiveness of Mark Hollis's voice where you don't know the words he's singing, but you, the way he's singing them conjures something within you. And I think that's why Spirit of Eden has become this, this landmark album that everybody is obsessed with and, and is fascinated by because I don't know how you – maybe Van Morrison's Astral Weeks is one of the other few albums I can think of where it, it's obviously so you know so tightly arranged and considered but it sounds completely spontaneous like it's just wild you know wild growth uh you know almost almost automatic music made from the subconscious directly onto the uh the 7-inch tape.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's hard to talk about this record um because you, you you sound pretentious when you talk about it but it lives up to my like, sure expectations <laughs> like you have songs that are name checking like timeless like biblical themes like here when you look at the titles of the, these tracks the rainbow Eden uh inheritance I believe even I believe in you there's like this this sort of Christian religious theme that he starts using in this album, the next album, and, and his solo album, um, where he's he's gesturing at these concepts, and if the music didn't back it up, it would come across as pretentious, but the music backs it up. Um, and he's sort of, he's, I think this is, it's an incredibly ambitious record because he, it's really uncompromising Like, I think the first time the label heard this album was when he actually turned it in. And I think there's a legend has it, like that the the A&R guy that when he heard the record, he was like, he cried (laughs) (laughs) out of he cried, not because the music, music was beautiful, but because they were they were looking forward to the color of spring, too. And this is so clearly like, not that, like they, <laughs> yeah. they threw all this money at this record. I mean, they recorded for I think seven months or something like that with these uh, incredible recording sessions. And they turned in this record that sounds like it came from another planet. Like Jeff said, like it it's disconnected from anything that was going on at the time. Um, and even now, like, it doesn't sound dated at all. I mean, part of it is like he said, like Jeff said, like um, down to like the types of microphones that they were using, like the recording techniques are all pre seventies where the, where the previous two records sound dated. This, this record is intentionally almost recorded as if it is recorded in a way that makes it hard to date. Um, But the songs themselves um, are very subtle Um, in the sense that he's doing, he does so much with so little, um, where like a chord change, which is just like carried by the bass guitar, um, becomes incredibly affecting in his hands. Whereas in someone else's hands, you might not even notice it. Um, and this in, even though he's, you know, you're getting all these studio musicians coming in, all these different instruments, the music is incredibly tightly edited. Um, there was a quote that he has from this, I think, around this time period where he says, like, for some bands, like, the silences between the songs are more interesting than the songs themselves. <laughs> and you <laughs> sort of see him trying to avoid that fate for himself. Um
1: and, and by the way, I, I just I find buttons. it I find it interesting that if you get the CD version, this always bugged me. And in fact, I actually, oh, this feels like blasphemy, but I edited it out. Uh, there's a thirty second silence at the end of um, Desire, or no, Inheritance on the first uh, yeah. if you the CD. He. He intentionally, Hollis intentionally put 30 seconds of complete silence between that song's ending and the beginning of the next track on the album. Uh, And of course, he did it because he was like, you know, he wants you to focus on the silence and just to sit there and to wait. And I think about it and uh again i feel like a blasphemer when i was like well you know what that's nice but uh, i got things to do so i got <laughs> 30 seconds of silence at the end of desire i feel very bad about that but i do understand exactly what you mean about listening to silence and then speaking of just one other thing i want to say you know this this actually kind of plays into the next album Laughing Stock. i am fascinated absolutely fascinated by the production of these albums um and and you hear influences in live. and you talk about you know I mean, at the beginning of the show you talked about well Radiohead you know all these bands that are influenced by Talk Talk, but you don't necessarily hear it in their songs. There are things that I do hear showing up in other bands, and I think Radiohead in particular has become vaguely obsessed with the way Tim Freeze Green, who's the producer for Talk Talk, co-wrote these songs, microphoned their drums and yes. their percussion. I am just I'm I am entranced by the sounds of the drums not only the beats because you know at this point you know Lee Harris is playing he's grown so much from the days of you know four on the floor like you know da bada, da stuff now he's playing these like you know these very weird sort of you know jazzy shuffly beats that almost feel like they feel like the pulses of life rather than you know you know as I said four four timekeeping but the way they're microphoned, uh, not not close miking not the way that you know ringo would sound on the white album or something like that but almost as if they're heard from across an empty room or you know from down the hallway uh, like an echo of a drumbeat. again this is why i keep talking about these period this period of talk Talk's so, so albums is like it's a ghost haunting you you hear these echoes from from a distant room or maybe even from like another dimension it doesn't sound like it's entirely present with you it's crystal clear and yet it's foggy and it's hazy and it's out there in the distance and you can almost in your mind again you just can conjure the candle glow and and you can see the darkened room that they're playing in the mood and the ambiance is is something that i just i've never seen properly captured on any other sort of mainstream rock album but i see radiohead trying to imitate stuff like that on on songs like four minute warning and uh, pyramid song and, and other things like that uh so i i really think it deserves to be singled out this production style is uh Again, this is what I mean when I say like, yeah, there are a lot of bands that are influenced by Talk Talk, but there's nobody who sounds like Talk Talk. And that of course takes us to their last album, which is not the last album we'll be discussing today, but their last album, which is called Laughing Stock. They broke up with EMI, as Ezekiel said, you know, the the A and R man wept, tears of despair. Knowing they could never market this album and they had a really bitter breakup with their record label that's probably not worth covering here. They signed with Verve, which is a jazz label by the way, Um, a two-record deal. Uh, it would take them uh, another seven years to deliver the second record on that deal, uh, and what they came up with is Laughing Stock. And if people thought that Spirit of Eden was far too abstracted away from the sort of commercial goodness of Color of Spring, I can't even imagine what they made of Laughing Stock. Because here you finally see it's it's almost like you know somebody shedding their corporeal being and becoming a pure energy or something like that. This is a, this is an album that almost entirely dispenses with song with structure. It doesn't dispense with melody, and it certainly doesn't dispense with beauty, but it is they have slipped the surly bonds of pop songwriting on Laughingstock. And they have come up with something that is as close to a rock version of jazz that I have ever heard in my life. You know, I, there's all these new jazz fusion, this, that. Uh, I think the best and, and truest sort of um, you know capturing of the jazz spirit by a rock group or in the rock format with those kinds of instruments uh, is on laughing stock, And that doesn't mean that I necessarily think it's their best album. I think there's a lot to criticize on this record, but it is again, unlike anything that uh, I have ever heard.
2: It's it- funny because um, the engineer uh, Phil Brown, he wrote a book about like a memoir and he talks about how his wife told him after the spirit of Eden sessions, like if you like record another album with talk talk like you have to move out and so (laughs) he he moves he moves into an apartment and they basically do like the same thing that they did with the with the last album with these sort of marathon recording sessions where they're you know throwing out stuff and the product is like this super spectral almost skeletal um music where like everything that you don't strictly speaking need he he throws out so, like, he almost throws out the entire song and leaves, like, what's left after you get rid of, after you get rid of the song. Like, he leaves, like, the melodies. He leaves, like, these really strange uh, textures. Um, there's points on this album where, like, you hear sounds and you're not sure, like, what instrument is even playing the sound um like whether are you hearing guitar feedback are you hearing a filtered keyboard like what what are you hearing the same time it's like really gorgeous music as, as unaccessible like as it sounds um, I feel like this album is just really it's just a beautiful record um, it's not it's difficult um, because it's so unpop. but um, if you take it if you take it on its own terms if you take it on on, on term on not on pop terms not on rock terms but if you take it as um a modern classical record or if you take it as a jazz record or easy, or, or if you take it as an ambient record um then it's uh, just gorgeous music and again just like the spirit of eden like this record is very hard to date um it still sounds still manages to sound like it's ahead of its time
0: this is, uh, it, it is an experience to listen to these albums all the way through. I mean, the, the the movement and the advancing or the, I guess, devolution of of the sound from album to album, just, just stripping things farther and farther away from where they started, even farther and farther away from Color of Spring. And uh, Laughingstock takes it another step from the previous album. It's, it's uh, I don't like it quite as much as Spirit of Eden, but there's, there's still a lot to like here. Um, the uh, Jeff had mentioned the way that, that things are mic'd, the way that things are recorded, and um, "Taphead" is not a, a, a song I expected to like, but I did quite a bit. And that one in particular, the way the drums are mic'd for that song—they uh, are, you know, the mics are, the drums are in a corner of a room, and and the mics are so far away, and the drums clearly—I mean, for this album and the last one. They're not propulsive in nature. They don't. They don't drive the song. They're, they're textural, and, and they add to uh, the feeling and, and the environment of the song. That's especially true, I think, on, on Tap Head, which is all about like controlling, you know, uh, sonically, you know, controlling yourself until these very brief releases uh, through the song. I mean, Tap Head is about as simple as you can get until uh, till the Hobo solo album, I guess. Simple guitar silence, space, some vocals, and then a trumpet uh comes in. There is just so much spaciousness in Tap I I enjoyed that song quite a bit. On the other end of the spectrum is probably Ascension Day, which is one of my favorite songs from this this period. Um very chaotic song. I mean, clearly planned, but chaotic in its at its at its sound. And and toward the end of the track when it descends into this cacophony of sound. I mean, it, it's percussive throughout. There are some jazz influences, but it, it's probably I don't know, the loudest track uh, on *Laughing Stock*. Get out. and as um, I imagine after the flood as well toward the center of the album um again there's so much atmospheric settings that go into these these songs and, and this one you have this this very loud guitar and on on the flip side these these rustling drums again just sort of adding texture to the sound to the song and in the middle you've got 80 seconds or so of this atonal jagged buzz guitar um so I, I, I think the, the further stripping away of what even was there on on Spirit of Eden doesn't doesn't work quite as well for me. But there are very beautiful moments on this record that deserve to be heard.
2: Yeah, like on on After the Flood is one of those moments. Um, you sort of he just unleashes like this uh, curtain of noise over mm-hmm. this track and. One thing, that's, one thing that this record and the previous one, record have in common that's not present really on The Color of Spring or either of the first two records is he'll completely bring songs to a halt. Yeah. Um, and there will be something that sounds like a different song or uh, maybe a, like a different band performing the song. Um, and After the Flood has one of these moments where... Um, there's a quote-unquote solo, which is basically like this atonal noise um, in the middle of the song. But at the end of that, of those atonal moments, uh, as this as the noise like uh, fades away, um, he brings in this organ sound over this over the over the baseline as it as it as there's a chord change and it's. Um, sublime i guess like this is the the payoff for uh sticking with this uh sticking with this song (laughs) through this uh curtain of of noise you sort of have that noise uh lift and um you know you can see you can see the beauty underneath it underneath it and there's lots of moments like that in um in these in these last two albums where he um you know does this tension release um uh, with the music that uh if you're not paying attention to these records you can easily have you can all this can easily you know you can you can miss all of it i think Mark collis once said that he doesn't he doesn't think music should be listened to in the background and i think these two and this last album are proof of that because mm-hmm. if, as you did when I first listened to Laughing Stock as my introduction to this band, you can easily like put on this record and forget that it's playing if it's not loud enough, like, and <laughs> you know go about your business because they 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 it doesn't demand your attention, um, and so it really requires you to pay, to be paying attention to, to be paying attention to what he's doing. <clears throat> And, um, and the process would continue I think on The Color of Spring which I think is um, more accessible than Laughingstock. I think this is the first time since The Color of Spring where he actually Mark Hollis came to the came to the studio with like Honest to God like genuine demo demo tracks for the music mm-hmm. where, you can, where people could sort of see where it was going. Um, there's like Real solos on the on this record, where those aren't really present on Laughing Stock. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm jumping the gun a little bit.
1: <laughs> the thing about Laughingstock uh, that stands out to me is that the two best songs on it are actually the two longest songs on it, which is not normally something that I would uh, expect to be the case. Sometimes, especially with a band like Laughing Stock like like Talk Talk. Where uh, you know they're, they're they're stitching these things together from lots of studio edits, the longer songs can maybe be a sign of self-indulgence. But the two songs here, the two truly, I think, immortal tracks on an album that I like a lot, I really like, in fact, but I do think is, is somewhat overpraised relative to its actual uh, objective quality. Those two songs are "After the Flood" and "New Grass." After the Flood. I. I There's a very personal note here, but uh, one of the reasons why I'll always be deeply fond of After the Flood, despite the fact that I think it's actually uh, the best song. And again, it has it sort of has that slow, um, sort of slow burn, organy groove that that puts you in the mind of something like Give It Up, actually, off of Color of Spring. Uh, but one reason it'll always have a very fond place in my heart is because it's the song that uh, was playing when I f- kissed my wife for the first time. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was absolutely the "I'm gonna make you a mix CD" kind of a thing. Uh, no, it wasn't a mix CD, actually, I just gave her a copy of Laughing Stock, and I was like, "You gotta listen to this album. It shows you how much I cared about proselytizing." It was only like a, like no, it wasn't even. It was, it was like a couple of months yeah. after I had heard it for the first time, and already was <laughs> I so taken by this band that I was handing copies of Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock to this girl who I had just met. She was the most beautiful girl in the world, pursued across campus by everyone. And I was like, well, this is gonna be my secret trick to get in good with her. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give her Spirit of Eden, you know, and guess what, it kind of worked. <laughs> I gave her Laughingstock, it kind of worked. So yeah, after the flood will always hold a special place in my heart for that one reason alone. A But the one that really, I think, just uh, is, it, it embodies the best of this approach, the best of this sound, all the promise of this style of recording and, and, and what, what Mark Hollis was going for on Laughing Stock is new grass. This is a song, again, the drumming on this, the microphoning that when I talked earlier about how obsessed I am with the way the drum sounds, on these albums, mm-hmm. it's new grass in particular that I'm thinking of, you know, again, you know, that very jazzy kind of, you know, almost a, an arrhythmic pulse, an arrhythmic heartbeat, you know, sh- 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 I can't even do a good job of, of really capturing. And I wonder how much of it is an organic performance and how much of it is actually just like stitched together from like 700 different takes. But the melody, so to speak on this song is non-existent. Uh, where the focus is really uh, is in the interludes that come between the singing of Mark Hollis's verses. It's very quiet. This is a song with relentless energy. It's always it's being rumbled along by this sort of restless drumbeat, uh, and it does feel almost like wind waving through the grass of an African savannah. Uh, and then it it sort of quietly dies away. A synth line comes into the picture, and then it's just a lonely piano just playing you know three descending chords dumb, 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 dumb and it keeps repeating that it keeps repeating that phrase and then finally it resolves to the major at the end uh, and the final thing and then all these these guitar I think it's like a feedback guitar comes in and it's just again this this these sounds are organic they sound they sound almost maternal this this feels like a song. Of, of, of birth and life and uh, natural processes that, that, that are inconceivable by man and aren't really ever really captured, certainly in rock music. And to me, the triumph of laughingstock is the triumph of new grass, I think some of the rest of these songs are a bit too discursive i've never been a huge fan of merman i've never been a huge fan of Head, and i think rune is is the last song on this album it's almost again barely a song it's just sort oh, of it's moaning all, it's uh, all
0: it's just silence i mean it's, it's all silence
1: <laughs> it's pure silence that's fascinating though i mean it's it's not bad but it just goes to show you the absolute how how minimalist can yeah, you make minimalism right. There you go. And that may be like it's like the spinal tap like, like you know and you say <laughs> how much more minimalist can it be? And the answer is none. None more minimalist. That's René. So I think this is a compromised album in some ways, even though I so respect what Mark Hollis was going for. Uh I do think it is uh, still a fantastic achievement. Um, but it's not the one that I would turn people on to first, even though I think that you know, music hipsterdom, the critics will all say, well, yeah, this is the one that is their true masterpiece. I would disagree on that.
2: I think another thing that should be said about this album, which is sort of a perverse thing to say after we've talked about how minimalist it is and how uh, far it departs from song, is I find myself, when I listen to this record and I'm paying attention to it, I found myself bopping my head like <laughs> to these to these sort of jazz drum beats that um, Harris is doing in in the background, and it's also a very a very sort of it's a beautiful record, but it's also very a very ominous record. I'm not sure where that comes from, whether it's because of some of the dissonance uses or ways of, or the. How some of the songs don't resolve.
1: I think there's an almost industrial grind on "After the Flood," and Mm -hmm. and remember what's the what's the quote solo on that? It's like a minute and a half of guitar feedback. Literally, it's somebody it's like just set a guitar against an amplifier and let it go "Ah!" for a minute. Yeah, I mean that's ominous, and yet it works within the song because it does feel like like basically this big churning mass of water that's kind of you know you know sucking you down.
2: Yeah. And like you said, I feel like this this sort of music is very elemental. Um, and that's part of the reason why it's hard to date and also timeless um, is because, you you know, you sort of have stripped away all of all of the reference points that you would use to date music. Um, even like quirks about songwriting structure that date to particular periods. None of that is really present. And in in this record, and I think that's I think that probably even more than the sort of experimental instrumentation or the dissonance that's used. I think that's probably why um, this record is maybe their most inaccessible record
1: Um, by by far. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, you previewed this a little earlier, but that, of course, takes us. Well, we the the story of Talk Talk nominally ends here. The band was quietly disbanded in nineteen ninety two after this album. Uh, but of course, Mark Hollis nominally owed the record label their new record yeah. label one more album. Nobody ever thought that that would be coming. They figured, eh, yeah, that's a write off. Uh, but then, boom! Out of nowhere, seven years after Laughing Stock was released, uh, Mark Hollis. This is the last thing he's ever done. The last thing he's ever done on his entire career. He, he literally has, has receded into silence after this, but his last documented recording was the solo album, the self-titled solo album from 1998 called Mark Hollis, which is in some ways a direct sequel sonically to what you hear on laughing stock, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, which is amazing because it's like seven years later, it's just like, you know, pick up the plot right from where you left off. Uh, But in other ways, is again a further development and this time into even more minimalism you know I, I, ezekiel uh said that like you know you know if, if if laughing stock is really inaccessible because it's a claustrophobic album and it's a very unstructured album there's something very light and free about the mark hollis soul album and i think it, it's absolutely worthy of being considered in the same you know canon as all the rest of the talk talk albums i just consider it a talk talk album i don't really think of it as like oh that's a soul it's like a Tom York solo album versus Radiohead album. No, no, Mark Hollis is part of the Talk Talk story. It's the last part of the Talk Talk story, and I think it's actually an improvement. I think it's better than Laughing Stock in some ways. Uh, but I'd be interested in hearing what you guys think about it.
0: So this is um, very much the same vein as Laughing Stock in terms of the the, the, the minimalist, minimalism and the sparseness to the songs. What I want to say about this is it, it does an incredible job um, of putting you in, I guess to quote Hamilton, right, in, in the room where it happened, in the room where it was recorded. I'm not sure I can recall another album that is so intimate uh, with the details of the sound that was in that room. Hollis said at one point uh, the best way to listen to his albums are is in the dark, right? So you have nothing else to distract you, to bother you, you're totally concentrating on the music, and in this case, listening that way would put you directly in the room where all this was recorded. There are times on this Hollis album where you kind of pause and say, "Wait, was that a was that a random noise recorded at the lowest level possible, or am I hearing something else?" All these things are happening through the music, um, and I I, I get. I pick up on, on, on these albums through Amazon uh, Music Unlimited. Not not a plug, but just explaining. So I'm not sure if it's the same for everyone, but, you know, uh, the first song on this album starts with 15 seconds of silence, which seems about right for uh, Talk Talk Hollis production. But then it, it, it begins, Color of Spring begins, and it's a beautiful song. Piano and vocal. Inside Looking Out. I'm listening to Inside Looking Out, and I can picture the uv meters on the recording board like just just barely hopping up just just barely moving it's recorded at such a low level uh much of the album is that way westward bounds the the one song i i kind of wrote down it, almost close almost close to a standard song structure to it uh, right with, with guitar and, and vocals but so much of this again much like laughingstock it is the silence how it's used, how it sets up what's coming next, and using the space that's given to you in in writing and producing these songs—it's an incredible. Every single one of these albums uh, in the Talk Talk Hollis collection gives you something else to kind of chew on. And this, for me specifically, uh, and Jeff had mentioned how the, the you know the, the drums are mic, but this this album—you know, you hear the strings, you just feel like you're in the room where all this is being recorded.
2: Yeah, I mean you can. There's moments on this on the track where you're like, did I hear like someone's chair creaking, <laughs> or like, or you can definitely like hear like the clarinetist like drawing in breath before they play something. So it's it's a very intimate record. Um, what I said before, I think you you missed this part, but when I was talking about this record was. Um, um, it's Mark Hollis came in. To this to this uh, recording session with actual demo tracks, and so these I think that makes these these songs a little bit more accessible than than laughing stock, um, even though he's still it's still minimalist. This is almost a folk record compared to how uh, you know deconstructed. Um, how deconstructed Lapping socks song structures are. Um, there's like actual, so- there's actual like melodic solos on this record um, that also aren't on Lapping stock. <laughs> Which is not to say that it's not a challenging record, like the song that's at the center of it, um, A Life, um, that is, if you don't listen to like free jazz, if that's not like your bag, like it's a pretty (laughs) challenging song to listen to. You're basically listening to um, clarinets improvising over this slow motion... (laughs) baseline
1: and, it, it makes me realize how inured i am to this stuff where i listen to a life and i'm like oh that's pretty accessible I'm like, yeah. no, no. no it's not no it's not jeff you, you're just used to this stuff
2: <laughs> yeah and it's it's still doing all like the stop this this stuff where he plays with song structures where they come to come to a halt stop start stop start um and there's a point in this record where if you're listening to it on headphones in like the middle section of the record it has like this whispery female singing, and uh, the way that it's mic'd, I don't, I don't think I've ever had this experience where it sounds like the voices are singing inside your head, and the music, everything, all the instruments are on the outside of your head, but the the vo- the vocals sound like someone is singing from inside your head, which is, I, I've I've never experienced that with another song. I think my favorite, my favorite song on this album, favorite two songs on this album are probably uh, "Watershed" and uh, "The Daily Planet." The Daily Planet, I think, is hard for me to describe because I'm not a musician, to so sort of don't have the vocabulary to, the musical vocabulary to say what's going on, but the song starts out with this um, soundtracky. Um so you know it starts out with like these atonal clarinets, then it moves into like this sort of soundtracky light and jazz um song, which almost sounds like a gimmick. Um but then when his the bass line switches and his and his vocals come in, it's like I don't know, watching the sunrise or something. Um, a sunrise, watching a sunrise after the end of the world, like in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> wasteland. Um, the sun rises and you have hope. That's the that's the sound the sound of that song to me. Yeah. Um, and I feel like one thing that we didn't mention, but I guess is probably obvious, is like, Talk Talk stopped recording live, um, stopped playing live shows after the Color of Spring. And there were never sort of a band that's interest that was interested in stardom and having like their face on the covers of magazines or even on the covers of their albums. Um, and so, in some ways, it's the sound of a band sort of receding from uh, receding from from view. The sound of a band that's sort of like going out the back door. Um, I feel like the Mark Hollis album is sort of the. Uh, end of that process, um, in a sense. Um, you know, he sort of, as Talk Talk goes, you know, journeyed forward from their beginning, they sort of dropped off band members. And so by the time um, the Mark Hollis album comes out, it's basically just Mark Hollis. Um, and so in some ways, um, I feel like the Talk Talk discography is the sound of a band purifying itself or alternately you could say the sound of a band disintegrating and this is the more callous album is like the end of the end of that process
1: i mean i think that i think you know i don't know if i could put it much better than you did ezekiel i, I will say that that uh i i love this album i, I like it more even than Laughing Stock. Uh, and The Color of Spring is my favorite song on this album. Oh, it's a great song. It's, it's such a great song. It's, it's just Hollis alone at a piano, actually. It, yeah, it, it's really, it, I made a reference to Call on the Night Boy, the B-side oh. version of that back at the beginning of the show. Same idea. Um, and it, may, it almost feels like a song that was written around the time of The Color of Spring, the album, which is why like he, just, you know, he decided not to record it or it's an outtake somewhere, kept it in his back pocket. They've made it a point kind of... I've noticed sometimes I can make some lyrics out. A lot of their album titles end up showing up in songs in one way or another. I mean, the, the first line I think of uh, "I don't believe in you" is, you know, now that the party's over, yeah. which of course refers to the party's over. Um, so you've you've got this beautiful song where he's just sitting at a piano, and again, it's it's about not only the notes that he's playing and the song that he's singing, but it's about the sound of the room. This is an album where again, silence is everything. The microphoning is everything he is it's a studiedly avant-garde approach to sort of depicting the 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 singular drive of an artist in his you know is is completely introverted and involuted drive to create music where the most important thing isn't even just you know the notes that are being played on a piano or the sounds that are being sung. Uh, it's the sound of the hum, you know, the tape hiss. It's the sound of you know, as you say, the chairs creaking on these songs. Um, and, and the rest of the album is actually, you know, fairly well orchestrated. Again, you've got lots of woodwinds, and you've got lots. I mean, it's funny. I mean, this is this is. We uh, we started off talking about a rock group, and now we're talking about something that almost feels more like a neoclassical proposition. And this is the way Mark Hollis and Talk Talk changed over time. But I love the way you said that. You know, this is the sound of a band receding or purifying itself. It puts me in mind, in some ways, of of. You know, very, very weird and heady science fiction propositions, or spiritual and philosophical propositions. I, I think of Talk Talk's journey from the beginning to its end, and I, I think this is the end. You know, it, it's this. This came out in nineteen ninety eight. Mark Hollis, people have been trying to get him to come out of retirement and do things. I think the most he ever did is he did a little incidental music for like – of all things, like a Law & Order episode or or like CSI, something like that. It was just hilarious but true because otherwise he's just not interested in making music anymore. He said what he felt like he had to say and he was done. And I respect that so much and I feel ultimately, even though I can't rationally explain it or justify it, that the story of Talk Talk is A spiritual journey what that journey is and what that journey means well that that is open to argument that that's open to interpretation and every listener is going to have a different take on what it is and and what it's about but the purification the winnowing uh process that took you from talk talk all you ever want to do is talk talk and synth pop in 1982 to a new jerusalem you know at the end of the Mark Hollis album in 1998 is singular, and I've never heard anything quite like it in the entire history of rock music, which is, again, why I say I'm just grateful for this this sort of edifice of music in my life, this narrative, this story that you can present to people and say, listen to these albums, they will tell a story in the process, in their evolution. They really do, and uh, this is the end of that story.
2: Yeah, I feel like the perfect way to wrap it up is to note that A New Jerusalem, Uh, to wrap up his journey is that a new Jerusalem ends with, I think like a minute and a half of silence. Yep. And, um, I feel like, like Jeff said, he never really felt the need to be a star. That was like, just not something he cared about. Like even in their one live performance that's recorded, um, you can see like he's hiding, he hides behind his sunglasses the entire time. And you can tell that he's like not a rock frontman, like he's doing his best, but like, that's just like not his thing. And so I feel like, um, the story of talk talk is, it is a story of purification and it's a story of like, a someone turning into themselves, like becoming what they were, what they were meant to be. um, and along the way, created these waypoints in these records <laughs> that I feel like, um, especially the last three records, just truly stand the test of time. And also, like Jeff said, like he said what he said, and there's really no need to add to it. Um, he's he's sort of he was sort of always famously reclusive, um, and when people would try to get him to talk about his records, he would almost have very little you'd almost never have anything interesting to say about the records. Um, You'd say like it's on the record and there's nothing more to say. And I feel like once he got to the, to the Mark Hollis album, he got to the end of it and he just didn't have any more to add, which is something that I respect. Um, He didn't uh, try to keep going and try to come up with things to say. Uh, He sort of said his piece and that's, and that,
1: and that was enough. He, he fashioned his own story. He actually wrote his beginning and his ending. He wasn't just like one of these artists who who daughters on and continues making music because that's, they don't know what else to do. You got nothing else to do. This is my job. This is what I do. And he becomes messy and untidy. How many times in this show have we talked about artists with discographies where, oh, you know, those later albums, man. you know, We like were doing AC/DC the other week. Oh, God. Late period ACDC. You don't want to know. All right? Um, Mark Hollis has done something that so few artists ever get to do and usually when they do it it's it's sad and unfortunate it's because they died before their time they died an untimely death but hollis actually said i've done this this is beautiful this is whole this is complete i give it to you take it and do with it what you will i am done and he retired and God, it's so hard to let go and walk away. I mean, it's just so hard to do that. It takes such discipline and, and such a unique mindset that it's just another thing I respect
0: so much about him as a musician. And there we are, the Political Beats look at Talk Talk. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Ezekiel Kwaku, at The shrillest on Twitter. You can also find him as a politics editor at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. And we come to the portion of the show where all of us involved give you, the listener, two key albums and five songs that you really should hear from Talk Talk. And we open it up to our guests first each and every episode. So, Ezekiel, it's yours. Um, my two albums I,
2: I would choose are, I think these are the probably the albums that I would want to introduce someone to Talk Talk with but they're also just my favorite albums are um, The Color of Spring and Spirit of Eden. Um, and my songs, this was a, a difficult, <laughs> it was difficult for me to pick five songs. Um, I think that's partially, I mean, it's obviously like a, a testament to um, how many good songs there are, but also a testament to uh, the journey that they took. Um, that if you're trying to pick out Waypoint, it's very difficult to do so mm-hmm. um, because they're, the band is so so much different um, at the end than it was at the beginning. But I ended up choosing It's My Life uh, ha- off of um, the second album. Happiness is Easy off of uh, The Color of Spring, Inheritance, which is off of The Spirit of Eden, After the Flood um, from Lapping Stock, and Watershed from the Mark Hollis album.
0: Uh, and for my albums, I actually am going to choose the same two as Ezekiel: A Color of Spring, which I think is their their masterpiece. I think it's their best album, and and then also Spirit of Eden, that uh, follow up from The uh, Color of Spring. Song wise, again from the Color of Spring, I don't believe in you probably is my favorite <coughs> Talk Talk track. That's in the uh, the top five. From Spirit of Eden, the Rainbow, the opening track again. I don't know. I can't tell you technically what it is about it, but it drew me in completely from the beginning of the song until it finished, uh, roughly eight minutes later. Uh, Ascension Day from from Laughing Stock, one of the louder songs uh, on that album. I'm going to tell you, check out the B side, Strike Up the Band from uh, from uh, B side from the Party's Over album. And the fifth one, I go back and forth a little bit from a couple of choices, but I'll go back to The Color of Spring and tell you to go listen to Living in Another World, uh, which is just a a great song from, uh, again, what I think is their finest album, The Color of Spring. Jeff. Well, I I think this could be a first for us here on Political
1: Beats, where all three of us have chosen the same two albums. (laughs) Uh, Mine are also The Color of Spring and Spirit of Eden. I don't need to explain why. I've already explained why in great detail already. (laughs) Um, My five songs are uh, Happiness is Easy. I agree with Ezekiel. I think that that is one of their best songs. And and also just – a deeply moving song, a song that, that moves me and actually moves my wife, too. A song that the first time, I think, went on talk-talk song where you felt a true spiritual aspect to what they were doing, and you realized that Mark Hollis was, was going in a direction that you hadn't necessarily anticipated. He was on to, to greater concerns than just you know making you know catchy synth-pop hits for the mid-'80s. Uh, my second one is Time It's Time, which I could say almost, I could describe in almost the exact same way. I already went on to great tale about why I love that song. It's epic. It's the best closer they had on any of their albums. Uh, My third would be, I would take The Rainbow from Spirit of Eden, just like you said, Scott. It's eight minutes as an an overture. It is is not structured like any song that you would expect. Uh, It's just basically three sections that are put together and repeat Um, But it is mesmerizing. It is hypnotic and you will listen to it and then you will find out, oh no, 38 minutes have passed and I've listened to this entire (laughs) record. It sucks you in. My fourth track would be I Believe in You which is probably the last time Talk Talk ever bothered with a, a typically structured song, even though this is a very elongated one. All the, all the song forms on Spirit of Eden onwards feel like they're saltwater taffy just being pulled out, pulled out into these elongated uh, you know, sizes. I Believe in You is pretty formally structured, uh, and it's a beautiful song. It's the sound of, again, you know... Of, of consolation in, in heartbreak and in death, even. And then my final choice uh, would be newgrass from Laughingstock. Um, the wind whipping across the wheat or the uh, the waves of grass in the savannah. Uh, this is a song that actually sounds like you know, uh, you know wind blowing through uh, a vast plain, sound painting, the, the ability to conjure images uh, simply through using instruments and notes to create like actual things that you close your eyes and you see, you see something that is suggested by music. That's a heck of its talent. That's a heck of a skill. Um, It's one of the most amazing acts that any music artist can pull off. Talk Talk was one of the few that ever really successfully did it. They did it on new grass. Um, I just, you know, I've already told you guys a hundred different times why I love this band and they mean so much to me. I recommend them so strongly
0: to you. There we go. Talk, talk, political beats. Thank you to our guest this week, Ezekiel Kwaku, writer from California, currently politics editor at the New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. And you know him on Twitter as The shrillest at The shrillest, where he tweets about everything but politics, kind of like this show. Ezekiel, thank you so much for coming on Political Beats.
2: Thanks for uh, giving me a chance to rhapsodize about one of my favorite bands.
0: Absolutely. And one of Jeff's favorite bands, too. Uh, yep. Talk Talk. So I know you enjoyed this one, friend. Oh,
1: yes. Most uh,
0: assuredly. We'll be
1: back next week with, oh, God only knows, probably doing some you know Daft Punk or something like that.
0: <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at C D. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And uh, this has been a presentation of National Review. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or NationalReview.com. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Again, this has been a presentation of National Review this is Political Beats.